a lot of it come down to keeping them calm. So explaining to them that, yeah, the baby's coming. When I delivered my first baby, it was actually on a freeway. They were delivering this baby that had decided to make an early entry. They were very concerned and convinced that this baby was not coming now, but it was. <laughs> sure enough, you can't control those kinds of things. And I just wasn't confident during that call. So it was difficult to work out where they were. Eventually I got a pretty good location for the responding crews. Taylor is a triple zero call operator. She, along with her colleagues, take more than 7,000 emergency calls a day. Each of those a new emergency and a potentially life-changing moment for both Taylor and the caller. It's those moments that can take Taylor in so many varying directions during her shift. One second she's dealing with what she calls a run-of-the-mill emergency. The next, a moment of desperation, a moment of life or death. As you've heard, Taylor just received a call from a couple on their way to the hospital, stopped on the side of a freeway in an unfortunate premature induction of labour. This moment, for Taylor, and for those on the other end of the line, was a uniquely magical one. They kept on repeating to me that the baby's like, we can't do this, this isn't a part of the birth plan, this, oh. <laughs> you know, this, and oh I was, um, as a partner, you don't expect, they don't teach this in the birthing classes, like this isn't nope. something that, <laughs> this isn't something that, you know, we, you should have to deal with. The baby was born and the baby was born healthy. Um, I, um, I'm really fascinated now in, in what name they gave that baby after that particular story. But uh, I guess so we'll was I. I was very tempted to sort of slip in that, oh, my name's Taylor, by the way. Just in case, <laughs> you know, you need an idea. <laughs> it's unisex, boy or girl, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it can work. <laughs> Happy ending on this occasion, but just how quickly can things turn? This week on The Risk Equation, we explore how Taylor and other triple zero operators face these moments and how they overcome the relentless stress and pressure of call after call, all with the chance of that call being a life-changing moment. Before we dive any deeper though, let's come back to the beginning. Because as far as occupations go, working as a triple zero operator isn't necessarily something you just stumble into. Shifts that we do are seven till seven. 
triple zero as a whole does about a call every 12 seconds. Um, so it's, it's a lot of calls in a day. It's about 7,000 calls. How do you decompress? Because I imagine that, you know, working for eight or 10 hours in the center where you're constantly receiving those sorts of calls and managing those sorts of situations, that must get pretty wearing emotionally after a while. How do you step away from it? I find it really difficult to just wind down. Sometimes I'll come home and like even after night shifts and I'll be like, oh, I have to get back to sleep so I can come back to work in another 12 hours time. But I'm like, I can't sleep. I'm um, constantly zooming around the house. I'll be like, oh, now I've got to do this, this and this. I, I find it really difficult to wind down sometimes after a shift. sort of almost like an adrenaline junkie you sort of end up running these circles in your head about all of the scenarios that you've dealt with in any sort of 24-hour period and uh, it can be really really challenging to just like take a step back and breathe we're talking to a uh, a life coach called Shana Kennedy. She's a really lovely woman and incredibly talented at what she does. And she works with Olympians and executives in, in a whole range of different industries. And she was saying that one of the things that she finds uh, is most a challenge for people in those areas is simply just learning to slow down because so much of what you're trying to do is to work at speed effectively and efficiently. And the idea of like wasting time by just concentrating on your breathing seems like such a difficult thing to do for people with A-type personalities who work in these sorts of areas. Um, and yet it can be so important for just de-escalating your own stress response and, and being able to sustainably do it over time. Do they give you much time off to do that? So we'll do two day shifts. So the two 12 hour day shifts have a day off and then come back in the next night and do two night shifts and then have three days off and then come back in. But we've also got a, a button on our phone that we can press so that we don't get another incoming call coming in. If you've got to finish off a job and you've got to write some things in, some notes, but also if a job's been a difficult and you're like, oh, I just want to have a few moments, um, they let you have that moment to do that. Do you remember what your first day taking calls independently was like? I remember feeling like, um, like I remember being so scared. I was like, oh, what could my first call be? Even I would sort of start to think of scenarios and I would be like, if a, a truck hit a house and exploded and then an airplane crashed into it, like, what would I do? You know, no idea, like, how would I manage this sort of emergency? Yeah. And they were very underwhelming. I remember thinking, like, oh, okay, like, what was I so nervous about? So I guess that's a positive experience to have um, for the first bit. <laughs> What 
when I started doing surgical on call, there's such a spectrum of what you can be asked to be called to respond to that it's very, very nerve wracking when you've got a limited amount of experience or when you're just stepping up into that role. And of course you do have a lot of supervision and you've got a lot of support structures around you, but they're not always immediately around you. And so the thing that always plays on your mind is, you know, what happens if a big trauma comes into the emergency department that we need to deal with? Because that's one of those time pressure environments where you may not necessarily have the immediate senior support that you, you need to have. And I remember like on my first couple of shifts, just always having this like heightened stress response sort of waiting for the buzzer to go off to say that there was going to be a trauma response. And the entire day was just like people coming in with generalized abdominal pain that you know, it was just viral infections and things like this. And at no yeah. point in time did any sort of ER heroics take place. But you're sort of like just constantly in that zone where you're like, oh my gosh, at any point in time, I might be overwhelmed. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this situation if it comes. And it's almost like the anticipation is so much worse than the reality in a lot of the cases when it comes to these sorts of things. nightmare scenario for a triple zero operator you get a call and the person who's called you doesn't speak the same language as you doesn't know how to communicate what's going on or how to get help can you tell us about when that happened to you and the circumstances around that He'd spoken minimal amounts of English. Um, I think he could say basic phrases, like he could ask for an ambulance and state that it was an emergency, but I'm talking he'd been in the country for days. I'd asked him, what language do you speak? And he just was unable to respond to that at all. Luckily here at Triple Zero, we have access to really good interpreter services. Um, so I was able to connect through to an interpreter. Ended up discovering that he was unable to give me his um, address. So I'd asked him if he had a letter in the house and if he could just read out the letters of the address written on the letter. Um, he didn't understand the written English language. So he was unable to even read that out to me. I was able to relay through the interpreter um, for him to head out onto the street, find somebody to flag down and read the address from this letter. So he approached somebody um, and they kind of ran away from him scared. 
It sounded like he was running, um, yelling at this person in another language. So I was then I was able to say to him, like, perhaps put me on loudspeaker and I'll speak to the person. I was able to get the address from another bystander um, that was really, really helpful. Um, and then he was able to run back um, and he was able to tell me that what was what was wrong, his child was really unwell. By the time the ambulance got there, the child was quite unwell. Very grateful to the bystander and to the interpreter service that we would be able to work through that. I think about all those times that I've been overseas and in a country that doesn't speak English. It can be a really disorientating experience when you, you know, walk into a country for the first time through the customs administration. Suddenly you're in this completely different world where you realise even the basic things are suddenly really, really difficult because you can't communicate what you're thinking to someone. It sort of highlights, I suppose, the stresses of a job that is inherently quite challenging just by virtue of the fact that you can't physically help that person except through your voice. You know, the only way that you have to mediate the situation is by how you're communicating with that person. And then when that's taken away, how difficult that must be. Was was that something that sort of came naturally to you when you started in the Triple O call room, the capacity to effectively recruit people through your instructions to do really quite extraordinary things? Or was that something that you had to build toward over time and figure out how your style was going to work? It's definitely much more difficult when we first start out to be able to kind of work out what call style works for you. And me in particular, I can sometimes sound quite firm over the phone. Sometimes if I sound empathetic, I can sound too empathetic. I can sound a bit condescending. That can come across to people. Um, everyone's got a natural style and I think you've got to work out what fits the caller as well. You've got to sort of move through a few different styles until you go oh okay so this person responds to somebody being firm or this person responds to empathy or some people don't need a lot of assistance at all it amazes me that what people are able to achieve under stressful circumstances without any any training This week's episode of The Risk Equation is brought to you by Old Drop Coffee. Old Drop is an online coffee marketplace that's helping support local Melbourne businesses and creating a sustainable, fair and stress-free coffee buying experience. All of Old Drop's coffees are roasted, ground, packaged and shipped from Melbourne directly to your door. And the prices are a lot lower than you might expect as well. Looking at Coles or Woolies, you're not paying much more. I'll drop prices start from just $15 a bag. And that $15 bag is coming from a small, local and sustainable Melbourne roaster instead of your giant supermarket brands like Victoria or Lavazza. I'll drop have set up a 10% discount code exclusive to listeners of The Risk Equation. That code is RISK, like the name of the show. That's code RISK for 10% off at altdrop.com.au. And thanks again to Altrop for sponsoring this week's episode. We really appreciate it. Now back to the show. 
when you're recruiting somebody to help you or you're trying to allocate resources effectively to them, what are the sort of the techniques that you've developed over time that you say, hey, look, this reproducibly works in these sorts of circumstances? What are the sort of the key tenets, if you like, of managing a stressful situation for someone and making them functional on the ground so that they can be an asset to themselves and to you? Usually the most effective um, technique that we do use, because most people, when they call triple zero, want to help somebody that, you know, it's a loved one or a bystander, they're calling because they care. They're not just thinking, I'm just going to walk past whatever's happening. They, they genuinely want to help. So a lot of the time, if you instruct with a reason, if you can provide an instruction, but also provide a reason, like why are we going to turn this person onto their side? It's going to assist them breathing. It's going to open their airway or even we'll explain, you know, when we're doing CPR, we're going to start pumping the chest and giving the instructions for that. And this is going to keep their heart going until help can arrive reiterating that this will help them this is what's going to assist them that you know we may already have help organized but in the meantime we're going to work together and this is what we're going to do and this is why we're going to do it and you're simultaneously managing a few different things through that conversation aren't you because not only are you trying to instruct the person on the ground about how to best help the situation but you're trying to allocate resources How do you manage all of those things at the same time? How does that work? At the beginning of the call, um, usually it's pretty, pretty hectic and you've got a lot of things going on. Essentially working out what's actually happening um, and then working out what's required. But there's also the aspect of scene safety, like you've got to look after the caller's safety, the patient's safety, the responding crew's safety. Um, we're constantly setting, sending live updates to the crew about, um, you know, if it's an incident that has a weapon or if there's something dangerous, is where is that? Who's the person who has that weapon or where did that person go? Is all important information that needs to be relayed whilst they're driving to the scene. The dispatcher will dispatch the job over the channel um, and give the information, but um, the crews will be able to see on their software any important information, you know, the offenders on scene or this person's there and they're dangerous because X, Y, and Z, or it could be even, it's not even people that are always the danger, you know, something could be on fire or from an ambulance perspective as well. It's important to know, you know, if, if it's a child, what, how old they are so that you can start working out your drug calculations and you can start working out things by their weight and stuff like that so you can be prepared. And so you're updating that constantly in real time for them as you're having that conversation with people over the phone who are at the scene. In that role, there's a lot of things that you can do, but there are also a lot of things that you can't do. And I know that your background is in paramedical training and a lot of that role is very much about getting to the scene acutely and then putting your skills into action on the ground and in some ways it's almost the opposite sort of help that you're able to provide when you're a triple zero coordinator which is that you can guide people and allocate resources but you're not physically on the ground there do, do you ever find that that can 
lead to a sense of helplessness at times when there are these really critical situations and you're having to navigate, but you can't physically be there. And you, you, I can imagine you sort of want to. That sort of reiterate how important it is for us to be able to have sort of this call control over our callers so that they can work with us. And sometimes it can feel a bit like a caller may say something and they're looking at it. So what they may perceive as being obvious is obvious, but if I don't ask it, I don't know it. Um, things like, you know, um, are they changing colour might seem like a silly question, but if someone is changing colour, it's a, it's a very important thing to know. We just we heavily rely on them to be our hands, our eyes, our ears. It's an amazing partnership really, isn't it? You know, rapidly formed in seconds of critical need. I imagine you become very invested that situation when you're that person who's providing on the ground advice at that particular moment if there's a car crash or someone's collapsed or something really significant has happened and then you almost have to divest really really quickly and move on to the next thing how how do you manage that over, over time when you've got this incredible bond with these people for these few minutes and then all of a sudden you don't hear about it anymore um i mean I think no matter what happens at the end of the call, it makes me feel better that I know that what I've done's helped. And whatever the outcome is of the call, especially after the call, a positive outcome doesn't mean that I did do my job properly. I can only be judged on my performance on what I actually did. Um, it's always good to know that if things went well and what you did worked well. It's just, I just base it on my performance on what I actually did, if that makes sense. It absolutely does make sense. I think that it's really easy sometimes to think that in order for a job to have been done well, it has to have the outcome that we would most like. When in most cases, things don't work out exactly the way that we like, but it doesn't mean that the job wasn't done really, really well. And particularly in medicine, I think, and in healthcare, that's very true. And it's very easy to beat yourself up if something doesn't work out the way that you anticipate. But if you reframe it and you say, well, was there anything that we could have done differently that would have led to a better outcome? And if the answer is no, then in some ways that was still a success because you've done the job to the best of your ability within the limitations that we have in this day and age. I can see exactly what you mean by the fact that it's not so important to know exactly what the outcome is as long as you know that in that moment you've done everything you can to try and help them get what they were looking for. I was listening recently to a, um, an interview that was done with a doctor over in the United States and he had a heart attack at home and no identifying reason as to why that was the case but his wife ended up having to do CPR for him and called their equivalent of triple zero and obviously got an ambulance dispatched and then was sent to the hospital. And about a month or two later, thankfully he survived that incident, they had a gathering at their home where they invited the police who'd responded and the ambulance teams that had responded and some of the other doctors in the hospital, which was something he was sort of uniquely able to do because he worked in the same service in which he was taken to. And uh, and they said, thank you, and sort of talked through the process. But he was commenting at the time that uh, how few opportunities there are for first responders to be thanked for the work that they do and to be recognised for the work that they do just because of exactly that point that you're making, which is that the, there's a time-limited nature to the intervention that you're providing and it's a critical intervention that you're always having to move on to the next case. And it was sort of nice to see that in, in his particular instance there was that feedback able to be provided. 
and while it's not necessary, I'm sure that in many cases it can be appreciated. And I wonder whether we should have better systems for doing that. You know, like as a doctor, we're very lucky because we get to follow up with patients in the outpatient clinic after the fact. We get to see people progress through their journey. Uh, but when you're in that sort of critical response team, uh, you don't have that sort of luxury. Um, although there is instances, like for example, the um, story I told earlier about the man that had difficulty communicating with me, I got to have a few minutes once the responding crews did get there and just to have a conversation with him and also just to let him know that he did a great job and that, you know, like he really held himself together and he started crying at the end. Like he eventually just, he finally broke, but I was, you know, and he was very thankful, but I was, I liked that I also got to tell him that he did a really good job and that, you know, not like a really good job and he's worked really hard and he deserves to feel good about himself. Do you guys lean on each other quite a bit in, in the office? Because I imagine there's a there's a varying degree of experience, isn't there? Someone has to start off for the first time on the first call, you know, under supervision, I imagine. But then there'd be people who'd been doing it for 10 or 15 years. How does that sort of mentoring and those relationships work? We do training for a few months. And then once we've done training, which is sort of like some mock scenarios and sort of like working our way up into it, we end up doing a mentoring process, which we... We don't take live calls by ourselves um, until we're deemed safe enough to do so. We're then monitored by our team leaders quite extensively. But then even after that, it's in once you're fully signed off and competent, it's still always, no matter what someone's experience levels are, they're always asked. We're always asking questions and oh, I might do something and then we'll have a discussion afterwards and somebody else may have done some, may do something different. Or they'll be like, oh, I would do this in this instance. Or, you know, that we've always got open-ended discussion going about how we would approach a certain situation or somebody would go hypothetically, if this happened, what would we do? And it might be something that none of us have ever encountered before or someone may have encountered it and this is what they saw work, it's what they saw didn't work. There's constantly a rolling discussion going. Hmm. How do you debrief after some of these calls? Is, is there a process for that? Um, so we've got external facilities that we can talk to. Um, we've also got our team leaders are extensively trained in mental health and well-being. Um, or we've also just got our workmates that you can sort of turn to and have a moment. Um, Esther's pretty good in that you can log out if you need to, take a walk, have a chat with somebody, or um, we've on-site counsellors that come in that you know you can just log out and have a chat to at any point in time. So there are on-site counsellors that you can essentially go and reference at any point that you need to. We we don't have them there all the time. Um, but they do work for the company that we can speak to over the phone at any point in time. Um, but we have certain days that they do come in. One of the good things about it as well is that you don't even have to talk. It's not necessarily confined to talking about work issues as well, where, you know, we've got resources about financial management and stuff like that that we're allowed to access through this company relationship advice. Like it's, yeah, it's really about everything. Often talking in medicine about how few resources exist uh, for people who work in healthcare uh, settings for exactly that sort of thing. And when you consider sort of the accumulated trauma that you live with uh, in a hospital environment over time, it's sort of amazing that we don't have more official structures for it. And it's really encouraging in a way to know that 
in uh, in your office that that's a service that's routinely provided and routinely taken up. That's really cool. And how do you calm yourself when you're on the call to some of these situations? Because I'm a little stressed even just hearing you talk about some of these scenarios, let alone having to sort of put on a professional face and guide somebody through what to do in those circumstances. How do you how do you get yourself into that zone? I don't actually realise what's happened or how stressed I felt until after the call. It quite often won't be until I've hung up and I go, oh, I can't believe I just did that. Or I, you know, I just, I really get this tunnel vision and I just think, oh, this is what you have to do next and this is what you have to do next and sort of tackle everything one, to- one bit at a time. Our training is very extensive. So a lot of it is muscle memory. A lot of things just come as second nature. So by the time that you are taking a call, um, you can handle pretty much any situation that's thrown at you. And you have that sort of that, that golden thread that runs through everything so that no matter how stressful or, or difficult or complex the situation is, you've got that simple algorithm which you can then work through and apply the model essentially. They introduced a similar thing in surgery a number of years ago, sort of in the 70s and 80s. They realized that the way that people were dealing with trauma uh, wasn't consistent between different centers and centers that did a lot obviously did it very well but centers who didn't do it very much didn't do it particularly well in the United States and in the UK they found that the health outcomes related to trauma management were very variable according to those differences and so they introduced an algorithmic approach that is now taught universally sort of within surgical centers around the world in order to standardize the algorithm of dealing with a critically unwell patient and they found an amazing improvement in the clinical outcomes just based on introducing essentially a flow diagram of how to approach a situation in which someone comes in under those circumstances and the principle i suppose is that no matter how complex or difficult a situation is there is a structured approach that you can apply to move or get through it in an organized way and i apply that in my personal life now and sort of outside of my professional life do you find yourself doing that to yourself because so much of what you work in is algorithmic uh, by necessity? Do you find that creeping into other areas of your life? Definitely, especially um, for us, like the approach of just tackling one task at a time, getting the location first and then working out what's happened and then notifying the services. Like if you look at it in a holistic approach, if you look at everything at once, it can become quite overwhelming. You're like, oh, how am I going to do this and do that? Well, how am I going to do everything at the same time? Without a doubt, not just a little overwhelming, incredibly overwhelming. You know, when you're dealing with multiple different emergency services as well as multiple different people on, on the ground, um, I can imagine that it very, very quickly becomes a, a very, very complex uh, problem to solve. But do you find that those sort of tactics that have worked so well in triple zero uh, responses work in your own life as well when things are getting a bit complex? Yeah, that's the main thing that I can really draw back to that like from work is just like seeing everything from a bit of a, a checkpoint or a bit of a a formulaic response of this is what I need to do first, this is what I need to tackle second, and in order for me to do this, this, and this. When someone is thinking about making a call, do you have any advice for people when they're calling triple zero about sort of information to have handy or things that you would would make life easier for you when you're trying to get assistance out to people or, or allocate services? Um, it would probably just be trust the process. Our call takers are very trained. Um, our system caters for every single scenario like we can organize assistance a lot of what people grow frustrated with is our questioning system so when you do call for triple zero we'll ask you a handful of questions 
Um, quite often people can perceive that these questions are delaying the response, but it's, it's not, we, we may like, we may already have help organized and what we're trying to do is just update them on the way there. Um, but, it, but I, I guess it adds a bit of pressure to them as well to be right and to give the right information. I would just trust the system, um, just answer the best that you can. You can't be wrong. Um, however you respond to an emergency as well, like don't feel pressure to um, respond in a different way to what you're feeling because no one's wrong, even whether you're calm, whether you're, whether you're not, whether you're uncontrollable, it's all normal. Um, just trust the call taker and trust the process. always surprises me the way that people respond to emergencies sometimes people will respond to an emergency quite calmly sometimes people will just stand there and tell you oh yeah oh and he's missing an arm like and you're like okay just casually drop that in there like I guess it's always like the kind of person at the scene who probably thinks to call triple zero as well isn't it you know like it's the person who's not completely out of their senses but the person who's like oh we probably need to call some assistance here I might pick up the phone and dial those numbers and have a chat How do you calm somebody who is really freaking out and who isn't really in their senses? What techniques do you apply to that situation? Quite often, I'll just be honest with them and just tell them that um, this is what this is what we need to do, and in order for us to do it, you need to calm down. And I know that saying to somebody who's in a heightened situation or who's upset, as everybody probably knows, telling them to calm down does not always work. But sometimes you just got to be honest to people and just tell them, like, you know, I understand that this is a very distressing situation and we can deal with those feelings and emotions in a moment, but we just need to, right now, we need to work out how we're going to solve this issue in front of us. You must be like the best person to have around family Christmases, you know, just to like de-escalate every situation that occurs around the dinner table and just like be able to like apply the algorithm and, and be like, okay, I need you to calm down now. Let's start with exactly what it is that upset you about the comment that was made by uncle so-and-so. Do, do you find that this stuff sort of creeps into your family life as well, where people are like, okay, don't triple zero me now? I've definitely had situations where I found myself during conversations, someone will be telling a story and um, you've probably seen it in the um, medical world when someone, when you ask what happened, like what's the presenting emergency and they'll, they'll start off with oh, well, three weeks ago. Yes. <laughs> And it's like, oh, no, like, what, what, like, why are you here right now? It's the same sort of thing. Like, we've got to, yep. for triple zero, we've got to quite often 
that stuff's important, but we need to work out why did you call triple zero and then work backwards? Like what's the emergency? So I'll quite often call control them and draw them back to that point. Like, well, what's happening? And if someone starts to tell a story and I get bored during a story sometimes now, <laughs> I'll call control them to the to the point of the story and be like, oh, well, what, like, where's the funny bit or what's the point? Like, you know, I have to remind myself sometimes that no you have to actually let people talk when you're not at work <laughs> yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna use that term i'm gonna call control more people i think in, in consultations when you see someone in the, for the first time in the emergency department if someone's been referred to you for a surgical issue then a lot of people will have in their idea the information that they think is important that they want you to know i often find that you'll start by asking someone a um, we're always taught to ask general questions to start with but when you start nuggeting down into sort of more specific things People won't answer the question directly. They'll, they'll answer the question that they want to answer. And so they'll find, you know, some way of sort of weaving around the information that they think is the important thing. I, I thought that was only something that we faced in, uh, in hospital EDs, but it's nice to know that even triple zero operators deal with that as well. No, and I, I think a lot of it stems from, they perceive you like you're the professional. So I, I have all this information that now you do something with it. So that, you know, hearts in the right place it's trying to give the most amount of information not not withhold it but yeah in the emergency setting sometimes it's let's start with the emergency work our way backwards through everything i walked into a consult once in the ed and it was for a child that had been referred to me with abdominal pain for likely appendicitis and i walked into the consult room and he i said i g'day my name is chris i'm the surgical doctor nice to meet you and he said hi chris i have appendicitis (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, well, I feel a little bit redundant now, don't I? <laughs> Job and, done. You know, David, he was right too. He did have appendicitis and I thought, well, there you go. Sometimes you should listen. <laughs> I, um, I'm really so grateful for you joining us on the podcast today and giving us a little bit of an insight into what it's like to work. Uh, in a triple zero call room uh, i'm certain that there are so many people who are, are grateful for the work that you've done and at least one baby that's named after you somewhere in the country <laughs> and uh we're we're just really really thankful to have your insight and and uh and your thoughts today thank you thank you for having me thanks to taylor for joining me on this week's episode of the risk equation before we end the show, another thanks to Altrop for sponsoring the show this week. Visit altrop.com.au and use the code RISK for 10% off your purchase of coffee. If you haven't already, please feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Leaving feedback is a great way to let us know you enjoy the show and let other people see the podcast and join the community. So thanks again for listening to this week's episode and for your ongoing support.